Our scripture is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after having given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Last Sunday... Um, I think even before the service, I had a chance to talk to Corey and said, I know you're going to be at conference this week. Um, and then we were on the same wavelength because I was about to say, would you like me to speak? And then he kind of said the same thing at the same time. So I said, absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to do this um, because um, I don't get to speak very often. And... Um, <clears throat> And as Tracy knows, I have a lot of words, so I'm just happy to share them this morning with you, too. I am going to rely heavily on the slides, so I'm going to start with this. This is from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, and he ends up talking about the ends of the earth as to where you're going to be witnesses. And my question is, what do you find at the ends of the earth? So we're going to go through Acts a little bit today and explore this. Uh, the actual narrative is about crossing boundaries. The book of Acts narrates the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, according to that uh, statement of Jesus in Acts chapter 8. And it's like ripples from a stone dropped into a lake. That movement extends to a wider and wider geographical area, and it makes contact with an expanding population of people. The spirit is what empowers this movement from the very beginning. The first sign of this boundary-crossing gospel appears on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 tells the story about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, accompanied by miracles of people hearing the good news in their various languages. That illustrates that the gospel is not confined to any single nation or any single language. This foundational pillar says that the gospel is available to all people. Those early chapters in Acts show the Christian movement operating solely within the cultural and religious borders of the Jewish people. And it's not until persecution scatters those first disciples that we see the gospel actually crossing cultural borders. In Acts 8, a Greek-speaking Jew named Philip leaves the confines of Jerusalem to share the good news with the people of Samaria. And this is a bold step. The Samarians, who are Samaritans, who are not full-blooded Jews, were considered culturally and religiously inferior by the Jewish people. 
the Samaritan's positive response to the gospel shows that God is interested in outsiders as well as insiders. And that's something I need to keep in my mind, that God may not see or label people the same way that I do. So we've got to keep moving forward in that one. Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian official in the desert uh, enables the gospel to cross yet another boundary, this one into Africa. The sincere seeker after God is not Jewish. He's referring home. He is, um, sorry, returning home after worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. Philip and he meet at just the right moment, explaining the scriptures that he's reading. This is the first time in Acts where we find a Gentile coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Racial, cultural, and geographical barriers come down in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Two conversions happen in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Peter encounters a Roman official named Cornelius. Now, I'm telling this to people who know this story already. I just want you to see this in context. This is a critical development in that rippled movement of the gospel into the Gentile world. On one hand, Cornelius and his household are ready to receive the gospel as Peter shares it. Philip is responsible for the gospel crossing into Africa. Peter's responsible for its movement into Europe. But that second conversion I talked about really has to do with Peter himself. With Cornelius coming to faith, Peter experiences a conversion. It's theological. It's cultural. God wants Peter to understand that he doesn't quite get who's in and who's out of God's favor. And ultimately, Peter himself is dragged, maybe kicking and screaming, maybe not, but by the Holy Spirit, who does it. Um, into the discovery that God doesn't play favorites. He accepts people from every nation. It makes me wonder at times if my culture-bound perspective gets in the way of what God wants to do in the world. This man has nothing at all to do with Acts. <laughs> Just in case. But in the spring of 1924, Jack Sundine was a four-year-old kid standing in line in the White House to greet President Calvin Coolidge. He was amazed at how long this line was and that it was moving as quickly as it did. The president greeted each one and said something intimately to them, and then they, the line progressed. When he got up there, he was introduced. The president said, it's nice to meet you, leaned forward and whispered, now move along. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do now, too. Okay. The story of Peter and Cornelius paves the way for an active international mission to the Gentiles as performed by that church in Antioch. You can read about that in Acts chapter 11. This is the first evidence of a multicultural church where both Jewish and Gentile peoples worship and apparently share meals together. It was a big cultural issue for those people and a good landmark for us to be thinking about, too. It's this church in Antioch that's responsible for extending those ripples of the gospel by sending out two people named Paul and Barnabas. They're on their first overseas mission to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, and Acts chapter 13 shares that event. The second half of Acts shows the gospel truly reaching the ends of the earth, as Paul and his colleagues may have understood it. Uh, there are lots that could be said about this, more than we really have time to fully explore this morning. But 
This sermon is following a movement that climaxes for me in Acts chapter 17, because by then, the gospel has rippled further and further into the Gentile world, revealing God at work in it all. In the beginning of Acts, the audience that heard the good news and those who shared it had a similar worldview. It's called the Acts 2 approach. It requires that listeners have an understanding of that basic principles of faith. Uh, the Jewish audience in Acts 2 believed in the same God of creation. They knew about the fall into sin. They knew what sin was. They understood that they were separated from God and that humanity had a long history of rebelling against God. Peter's message started with that common knowledge and used that to introduce Christ's death and resurrection for the need of individuals to repent and put their faith in Christ for their salvation. But the further we get from a culture that knows those basics, the more difficult that approach is. Well, what I mean can be explained this way. In the 20th century in America, there's a widespread understanding of morality, a strong cultural connection to Christianity, and the belief that the Bible was a reliable source of authority. Billy Graham had successes in his evangelistic campaigns because the Americans listening to him were similar to those people hearing the gospel in Acts chapter 2. However, in Acts chapter 17, Paul encountered a different audience. The Greeks. You're supposed to chuckle at this slide. But that's okay. This was at a soccer game, by the way. And as you all know, soccer really brings out some of the passions of people. Okay. The ancient Greeks were outright pagans. They had no knowledge of the true God or an understanding of what sin is or the consequences of the fall. The Greeks basically dismissed that message as foolishness, as, they, as it's quoted in Acts. However, Paul did have success preaching to the Greeks. One group of them, the Epicureans, were indifferent to God's. Like today's agnostic secularists, they believe that the chief human good was seeking pleasure and that the divine does not uh, interfere with human affairs. They didn't believe in an afterlife, so that was not a significant um, thing to consider. The Stoics in Greece, the followers of the Greek thinker Heraclitus, were pantheists who argued for the unity of humanity and the relationship that everyone already had with the divine. Both the Epicureans and Stoics were essentially fun, uh, materialists who, uh, unlike Paul, did not believe that there was one God who created the world and who was sovereign over it. But rather get into those kind of arguments, Paul used, the, Paul used to challenge these groups. I want to pull back and notice how Paul approached this culture that's found so far from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. He's absolutely committed to the gospel that announced God's purpose was to reconcile people through Jesus Christ. At the same time, Paul's flexible in the approach that, in the way that that good news could be expressed. This is called the Acts chapter 17 approach. Paul doesn't water down the message in Athens. He announced the good news that God raised Jesus from the dead, even though some of his audience uh, thought the claim was dismissible or silly. Paul offers a good model for us today. Our efforts and mission must always be sensitive to life situations of the different people that we encounter. At the same time, we must tell and live out the good news without ever compromising the message. 
the gospel challenges every aspect of culture, including our own. And speaking of our culture, there really is nothing new under the sun, um, either for those early Christians or the people that we might call living at the ends of the earth. If the early church thought Greece was far from them, what in the world would they think about where we are right now? Hmm. So, talk about what happens at the end of the earth. All you have to do is look outside because that's where we are. We have Epicureans in our culture. They're better known as hedonists who believe that the chief human good is seeking pleasure and that the divine does not interfere with human affairs. They don't believe that there's an afterlife. Oh, it may not be relevant. But today's Stoics, like our pantheists, who still argue for the unity of humanity and a relationship that everyone can have with the divine. Many who have inherited the mantle believe that all religion leads to the same conclusion, although there are major disagreements about what that conclusion might be. But the story of Acts is a story of barriers coming down. The Gospels for all people of every culture. And we are part of that story. The church today, not just this congregation, but I'm talking about the church at large, is part of the story. It's called to get caught up in the same mission of God. God's purpose is to bring salvation to a world through a spirit-empowered church. And that's an unfinished story. It's a long way, I'm sorry, that story is being lived out in places as far away from Jerusalem as Columbus, Ohio. So what do you find at the ends of the earth? And at this point, had I been thinking, I would have brought a mirror up and I would have held it up, but I wasn't thinking. And I would say, you would find you at the end of the earth and a mission and a purpose and a responsibility, and a challenge, and that's where I'm going to leave this message this morning. What do we find at the ends of the earth, and what are we going to be doing about that? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this might have been brief, and this might have had a lot of pictures and illustrations, but the point is that your gospel stands eternal. And that we have a place in it. And we're grateful that we do stand on the shoulders of others who have brought that to us. And we're grateful for the challenge. And we're grateful for the opportunities that we might have to continue what's happening in the book of Acts. I imagine if that continues in heaven, Lord, we're on chapter 1000 something. Let that gospel continue to grow and spread, rippling out and having an impact. Not because we desire it, but because we know that you have work to be done and we are people uh, who have insight and knowledge and can do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.